Gresham College presents The Artificial Heart, A New Ending by Professor Martin Elliott. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to another Gresham lecture. Um, I'm going to be talking tonight about um, The Artificial Heart, and I've subtitled it A New Ending because I think this is um, a talk really about where plumbing meets ethics. Uh, for those of you who uh, were at my first lecture, the, the heart's a pretty remarkable organ. It's been called the mother of all pumps. And um, as you can see, it does an enormous amount of work that uh, we don't know. It can increase its output five or six times during exercise. The rate can vary between 40 and 200 beats a minute. And each time the heart beats, it can squeeze out between 50 and 220 millilitres of blood in an adult. Quite an extraordinary performance. And most of the time you don't notice it's doing anything. But sadly, the heart can fail. And it can fail for a variety of congenital reasons or the usual things that you will all know about, coronary artery disease, high blood pressure, infection, uh, and uh, consequence of drugs. Now, a, a, good, <coughs> excuse me, a good ventricle, um, like the one you see over here, is... Um, beating at a reasonably slow rate, and each time it's squeezing, it's forcing a little bit of blood out. Let's just compare that with a bad ventricle, which is dilated and swollen, and like a, like a tight balloon, and it's having to beat a lot faster in order to get a reasonable amount of blood out each time because its capacity is so constrained. And the reason that that's a problem is that there's because of the law of Laplace. As you dilate the ventricle, as it gets bigger and bigger, it becomes stretched like a tight balloon. And the stress inside the wall increases in exactly the same way that a balloon does. And, and as you're doing that, the amount of oxygen that the heart consumes in trying to do its work increases, so you get into a vicious circle. And it also squashes all the blood capillaries inside the wall, which make it difficult for the heart to function. Inside the cell, the muscle fibres get further and further stretched, and so there's less and less room for the tight bonds that occur in this area to occur during contraction. So on a normal heart, you can see the wall tension is evenly distributed. In an abnormal heart, where it's ballooned up, the wall tension is greatly increased where all the yellow areas are, and this is um, from an MRI image. There's another kind of heart failure that we see where it's not dilated, it's actually restrictive and compacted, and the muscle is so thick the blood can't actually get into the ventricle. They're two different types, but they have the same net consequence for the patient. So there they are on the left, our dilated cardiomyopathy and our restrictive cardiomyopathy, and both of them are having, producing a low cardiac output. And upstream that has hydraulic consequences. Because it's so hard for the venous blood to get back into those ventricles, the pressure in the veins increases and fluid is forced out of the walls into the tissues, into the lungs, where you get what my grandmother used to call water on the lungs. And downstream, you get really bad circulation. It's easiest to show in the feet, but if you imagine it in your liver or your kidney or your brain, that you have poor circulation everywhere. You'll have seen people with fat ankles. When you press on them, um, you leave a pit, pitting edema, or ascites fluid in the abdomen, all caused by failure of this fluid to be uh, moved forwards. 
Now, heart failure is, um, as Véronique Roger said, a staggering clinical and public health problem. Let's consider why. So this, uh, in her paper in 2013, the number of patients in the United States at that time was 5.8 million. And now, this year, it's expected there'll be 670,000 new cases diagnosed each year. This is not a small problem. And if you expand that globally, that means there are 25 million people living with severe heart failure worldwide. And it's, um, it's, it's a sort of slowish demise. So at five years, only 50% of the people diagnosed with it are alive, and only 10% only at 10 years. So it's a slow demise. And the, therefore, the number of people with this, with improving diagnosis, is going to increase. It's staged into four stages, and the first three stages are normally managed by a variety of drugs. I'm not going to talk about those tonight. The staging is described by the American Heart Association, as you can see. In the stage D, the, the last stage of heart failure, you're really looking at ways of controlling symptoms, improving the quality of life, reducing the number of times you have to go into hospital, and working out how you would like to finish your life with this condition. And that gives you various options for treatment. We might just swap you your heart out and give you a new one. You might be able to use some newer drugs by infusion pump that you can carry around with you. <coughs> We're going to talk quite a lot about mechanical support, but we mustn't forget palliative care, making your life comfortable, and also turning off devices like an implantable defibrillator, which might allow you to finish your life a little bit earlier if that's what you choose to do. Now, as a surgeon, I've always been um, involved in trying to find ways of treating serious heart failure. And a number of procedures were started and subsequently abandoned because the results were basically just not good enough. The first one of these, dynamic cardiomyoplasty, takes the huge muscle in your back, latissimus dorsi, wraps it round the heart, paces it, and uses it to uh, contract and squeeze the ventricle for you using the valves inside the heart to make sure the blood goes in the right direction. That was started by Alain Carpentier in Paris and uh, did over, well over 1,000 of these, and sadly it didn't work. Uh, the mortality was very high and heart failure recurred. So another group decided to wrap the ventricle in a, in a, in a sort of plastic bag, tight plastic bag, so that you would reduce that balloon-like distension and decrease the wall tension and make it beat theoretically. That didn't work. And another surgeon called Batista uh, reckoned that if you could just take a piece of the balloon out and make a much better shape, then you would reduce the wall tension and it would also work. And again, sadly, the mortality was uh, too high and the recurrence rate too high. So um, why don't we try some other things? Well, uh, one of the nicest and most effective ways of buying time with this condition is to repace the heart, because as it distends and stretches the electrical signals which pass over it sometimes don't pass in the most efficient and effective way. And by placing electrodes, pacing electrodes in different locations on the heart, suitable for that individual patient, you can resynchronize the rates of contraction and buy some time. If you've got coronary artery disease, coronary artery disease you can fix that. Um, and you can take out dead muscle aneurysms or repair leaky valves. It's very conventional cardiac surgery.
We can fix it by changing it, as we've said, with transplantation or putting in a total artificial heart, which we'll hear about in a minute. And more commonly now, using something called ventricular assistance. Now, um, one of the great uh, moments in most cardiac surgeons' lives was in 1967 when Christian Barnard did the first transplant, heart transplant in Cape Town, much to the shock of the people he'd learnt it from uh, in California who thought they were going to be first. Um, but there is no doubt that those of us who are lucky enough to have done a heart transplant, um, it's a constant amazement to take out a heart that's failing and put it into a bowl uh, and then, a few moments later, uh, one arrives on ice from a donor who's been generous enough to leave their heart to us. And within a few moments of repairing it, that heart will beat and give the recipient a whole new life. It does feel like magic, even now, after all the times that I've done it. But heart transplantation isn't perfect. You can have a survival. 50% of people who have a transplant are alive at 11 years. That's good or bad, depending on how you choose to look at it. And uh, only 16% alive at 30 years. If you get through the first year, the median survival is 13 years. The trouble is that you have years of drugs to stop your heart rejecting, because it's not your heart, it's somebody else's heart, and your body chooses to chuck it out, and the immune response is quite uh, dramatic, and so you have to suppress that, and those drugs are, are quite toxic and make you more liable to infections. And there's another problem which is beautifully demonstrated by this graph, which shows the number of transplants done throughout the world per year since 1982. 1982, 2013 up here. And 3,750 transplants is that line. It basically hasn't changed over the last 20 years. Now, remember that we have 25 million people worldwide with heart failure. This is just uh, scratching the surface of the supply. It's a huge supply problem. So people started to say, how can we find a way of dealing with this problem? And um, so they started inventing machines that would help you get to a transplant, and that's called bridging to transplant, which is the majority of patients who get a mechanical assistance device. Some patients, who thought the heart was going to recover from that myopathy, and that was bridge to recovery. And in some, you put in one device of a particular type, transfer them to another device, which can last a bit longer, and that's a bridge to bridge to transplant. And finally, as the devices have got better, and what we want to talk about this evening, is actually when the machine itself becomes a destination therapy instead of a transplant. And that's a transition uh, which has enormous implications for, uh, for patients and for society. None of this would have been possible without the work that John and Mary Gibbon did in Boston uh, during the 1930s to the 1950s. They had watched an open-heart operation where somebody... Uh, opening a, a, a heart where somebody had died on the table, and they thought, if we can find a machine to support the heart while an operation is done, uh, we should be able to make it safer. And they spent 20 years building something that basically did this, um, and then, um, after 20 years, produced a huge heart-lung machine like that, which uh, carried out the first open-heart surgery in the 19, early 1950s. Um, all their first patients died, and they stopped doing it. 
But that work was the foundation of everything that happened afterwards. And so I need to take you back a little while to the 1950s and show you um, a little film which has the most awful sound, but uh, bear with me for a moment. This chap is Paul Winchell, or Winchell, and he was a television ventriloquist in the 1950s in America, and he went on to become the voice of Tigger. Named Tigger, T-I-double-G-R. That spells Tigger. The wonderful thing about Tigger is Tigger the wonderful thing. We all grew up with that. It's a lovely son. But he was quite a remarkable man. He, his fame as a, a ventriloquist made him quite a, a, a star on the um, social circuit in New York. And he was invited to the home of Henry Heimlich for, for dinner. And Heimlich was the surgeon who invented the Heimlich manoeuvre, which those of you who've done any training of first aid will know is what you do if somebody swallows a piece of food and it gets stuck in your throat. You squeeze them under the diaphragm and out the food's supposed to come. He looks like a good dinner party guest, doesn't he? If you do. <laughs> um, but um, after he'd been for dinner, he actually wanted to go and watch some... This is Paul Winchell. wanted to go and watch some open-heart surgery, and he went to... Um, Heimlich's hospital and watched another surgeon called George Robinson and sadly the patient that he was watching died on the operating table which must have been terribly distressing and uh, he went back and got in touch with um, Heimlich and said look you know I think if I could just come up with an idea to make an artificial heart maybe we could have kept this guy alive until we could have thought of something else to do for him well, uh, quite astonishingly, um, Paul Winchell, the ventriloquist, holds the first patent for the artificial heart in the US Patent Office. And here's the, the diagram. And um, he said it was basically just the same as working the eyes and the mouth of a, of a puppet. And uh, the circuitry um, works, and the artificial heart is fundamentally no different from what's been used ever since. And we'll show you some of that working a bit later. It's quite a remarkable thought. He didn't, unfortunately, go on to make a squillion pounds out of doing it. But in the late 1950s and through the next um, eight to ten years, a remarkable amount of work was done. And there's a great paper which is referenced in the handout at the end, which uh, was published in 65, which summarises those early years and uh, lists what you need in all sorts of ways for, to make an artificial heart work. And here are the basics of it. It's got to be small, not got to damage your blood. It's got to last a long time. It's got to be a reasonable size. And it's got to be, have an energy drive of some kind. They go in to describe all sorts of very interesting physics and mechanics about what it needs in the way of power and electricity, but there isn't time to talk about those. They did, however, um, show a variety of models of heart, like this one, um, where they have circulation of blood on the right side and the left side, controlled in flow by valves, and worked by a similar diaphragm mechanism to exactly that that Porn Winchell had described. And here's another version of a pneumatic pump where air is on one side of a membrane, air goes in, pushes the blood in one direction, air comes out and blood fills in another direction. We'll show you that working in a minute. They, they summarised all the designs that were around, from rocking pendula, 
squeezing blood one way and then the other to roller pumps which squeezed it round in a circle. But the real work was being done in the few years before 1965 at the Cleveland Clinic. And I, again, I'm going to take a few moments to show you a little bit of film about those early years because they, they are uh, really fascinating. Only a mass-produced mechanical cardiac prosthesis could serve the vast numbers of patients with terminal heart disease. Such an opinion was held by a research team at the Cleveland Clinic in the 1950s. Under the direction of Dr. Willem Kolf, inventor of the artificial kidney, the Cleveland Clinic group conducted a series of synthetic heart implants in dogs. These researchers would not be alone in this field of medical science. Similar studies were soon underway at Baylor University College of Medicine in Houston, Texas, where investigators in 1962 reported their experiences with an apparatus designed to assist the left ventricle, the heart's most vital blood pumping chamber. The pump, used successfully in 47 canine subjects, was primarily the brainchild of Dr. Domingo Liotta, a native Argentinian who had previously worked with the Cleveland Clinic research team. Leota had come to Houston in 1961 in order to work alongside two contemporary masters of cardiovascular surgery. By the end of the 1950s, doctors Denton Cooley and Michael DeBakey had become heart surgery's preeminent leaders. Um, unfortunately, they were both rather uh, competitive and um, their businesses and the amount of work they had to do in Texas, in the hospital they were at at Baylor, grew dramatically. And um, they had slightly different ideas about where the direction research should go in the lab, and they split up with uh, Cooley going to another hospital called St. Called Luke's, and they uh, remained separate. The promise of building a workable total artificial heart was what had originally brought Leota to Houston. But by the autumn of 1968, little progress had been made. In quiet desperation, Leota began to seek a sympathetic ally. By this time, Denton Cooley had established himself as the world leader in heart transplantation. In May of 1968, he performed America's first successful heart transplant and soon led the world in the number of transplant operations performed. Well, uh, it was evident in those early days of uh, cardiac transplantation after Christian Barnard had done his initial one, and when we did ours in early uh, 1968, a uh, number of months after that, that we weren't going to have enough donors. Uh, we had uh, many, many recipients, patients with terminal heart disease, but we could not uh, supply the need. The two surgeons devised a system that would allow a four-chambered mechanical heart to be powered by an external console. They employed the services of biomedical engineer William O'Bannon to devise the hydraulic mechanisms of the system. Engineers John Manus and Hardy Borland joined O'Bannon in constructing the drive console that would power the heart. For a time, O'Bannon's own garage was used for the assembly of the console. Leotta had spent 15 years of his life preparing now for an artificial heart, and they put it into cows, this enormous control. 
And then they decided that they could use this device, which came in two parts, was biocompatible, and they just needed someone who wasn't going to survive to try it out on. Um, and they were really looking around for a case. Just as animal studies with the device were concluding, along came Haskell Carp. The 47-year-old Skokie, Illinois resident had checked into Houston St. Luke's Hospital on March 5, 1969, after his own doctors had given up the hope of saving him. Multiple heart attacks had caused much of the muscle tissue in Carp's ventricles to decompose and become fibrotic. So Cooley had paid for all this research out of his own pockets and now decided to use something a bit like the Batista operation and just cut out an anterior part, the front wall of this ventricle, to try and make it work better in the um, really uncertain hope that it might work. And he'd got very complicated consent from uh, Haskell Karp that if it failed, they could then um, move on and try the Liotta heart. And this was how they stitched this up. It's pretty brutal, really. I had always said that was a very critical moment uh, for a surgeon to have a patient on the cardiopulmonary bypass. And then after you find that you cannot restore his heartbeat, you just tell them to pull the plug out of the wall and stop the pump. And that, to me, is an enormous defeat. Uh, the biggest defeat that a surgeon, a heart surgeon, uh, can experience. Just... So, and it didn't work. And so um, they moved ahead and removed Haskell Karp's heart from his chest, leaving a cavity in the chest um, with nothing in it, and brought into the operating room for the first time uh, Liotta's artificial heart, uh, which you'll see in just a second, and implanted that into his chest. Here it is. It comes in two parts, so you stitch in the left part first and then the right part. And uh, quite, really quite a remarkable piece of technology. There it is, the left, left side going in, and I'll just shorten the film at that point. Um, uh, this equipment that I see for the first time is implanted. It has drive hoses and cables coming out of it, goes to a console that drives it, and behold, you look at the monitor, and on the monitor there is what looks like a normal cardiac output with a normal pressure curve, and you don't need the heart-lung machine. For the first time in history, a human being was being kept alive by a plastic heart. Almost immediately after the operation, a search was underway for a donor heart. Mrs. Carp would be among the first to bring the news of the historic operation to the world. I see him lying there, breathing, and knowing that within his chest is a man-made implement where there should be a God-given heart. How long can he survive? One can only guess. The desperation in her voice, I think, gives some feeling of how... Um, emotional all this was, but also how Texas played on the emotions of the states and the donors, um, both for the heart and for money. And there was an enormous amount of money piled into the research as a result of this initial work. But uh, sadly for Haskell Karp, things didn't work out quite so well. 
Astonishingly, a donor heart did become available after just 64 hours. That Liotta heart was removed and replaced with a donor heart, but he died of sepsis and pneumonia just 34 hours after that transplant. And it was um, 13 years later before the next uh, fully synthetic heart was implanted. But by then, the FDA and the NIH had poured money into the whole research program. And a bitter feud broke out, helped by media coverage, between um, Cooley at the top and DeBakey at the bottom. And they didn't speak to each other until 2007. Mike DeBakey is an extraordinary man. He, um, in 1945, uh, got the, um, some sort of honor, I've forgotten what it was known in America, for um, starting MASH units, which became much better known during Vietnam. He also operated at the age of 84. He was 84 on Yeltsin, and um, he'd operated on the Shah of Iran, uh, on his spleen, not on his heart. Um, 1982, another of the Cleveland uh, team had moved to Utah by now, and this was Robert Jarvik. Um, and he was working with a surgeon called Bill DeVries, and they um, treated a dentist from Seattle, a tough old guy he's described as, um, who essentially volunteered to have an artificial heart. He was dying of um, severe heart failure, and he, he expected to die on the operating table. Uh, but he thought that if he had a go at it, given what he knew about medicine, then maybe he'd be helping other people in the future. It's a very altruistic uh, decision. The Jarvik heart, Jarvik 7 it was called, is essentially a similar type of heart to the one you've seen earlier. It has a membrane which pushes blood backwards and forwards and valves which make the blood go in certain directions. Here you can see the valves. And... Um, uh, that's how it's inserted. You take out the old heart and then stitch the new one in in, in stages. Um, Barney Clark lived only for 112 days, but they were unbelievably difficult days. He was very, very, very sick, and it was a terrible time. He uh, was extremely depressed during this, and I'm not, uh, rumors are he was regretted his decision. But since uh, within a decade, 236 of these hearts had been inserted in people. And a lot of those had moved on to transplantation. And this was the era when the money was really flowing in. And uh, even the New York Times said it was sucking money away from other research programs, for example, into cancer and drug research, that um, uh, was criticized quite extensively. Uh, commercial companies got on the bandwagon in a very big way at this stage. And the Jarvik heart morphed into this thing called the Syncardia Total Artificial Heart. And now over 1,250 have been implanted worldwide. That accounts to 350 patient years, multiplied patients by years of support. And they were kept pre-transplant, the longest, for over 1,300 days. That's a long time to live with one of these. And in order to live, uh, live with it, you fortunately could have the drive unit as a portable device. And so suddenly you're starting to see a shift in thinking that you might be able to walk around with one of these devices for longer periods of time. The, you can see the Jarvik heart here on the left. Another version of another design called the Abiomed was really smart because this didn't have a, high, um, a pressure line shifting air backwards and forwards to drive these membranes. It had another little clever bit inside, which was that it was full of fluid. And by spinning a little motor around, it was able to move fluid from one side to the other 
and squash one membrane and then the other membrane to keep the heart beating blood backwards and forwards. A very smart device, so you only need an electric drive line to this rather than a gas pipeline. And there's a new kid on the block, uh, which has come out of um, what used to be called EADS in Europe and now called Airbus, a company called Astrium. And they um, worked together because they said space and the inside of the body are fundamentally alien territory, and we have a lot to contribute. Working with Alain Carpentier in Paris, they've built a, um, a new type of heart called the Carmat heart, which has biologic valves from um, uh, a, a pig. They're, the surfaces are coated with pericardium from another animal, and it's got software which responds to the person's activities. So this is a, an animation of the heart, and the, the Carmat heart is shaped remarkably like a human heart, is stitched in place, and it has uh, the ability to respond um, in a similar way to your own heart to exercise by a variety of sensors that are within it which notice that you're starting to pump more blood back to the heart and it increases its, its rate. It's much more sophisticated software than has ever existed before from space technology. It can be driven by another little electric motor inside the heart just the same way as the Abiomed one can and you can carry it all around here with a control unit, battery pack on your back, and then the power to the drive unit goes in and down a vein into, into your heart in this way, allowing you to walk around and, in theory, lead a normal life. Um, not many patients, unfortunately, but it is very good technology that allows you to shift hydraulic fluid again, just like the other one, backwards and forwards, to drive these membranes, compress blood, and force blood in a particular direction through the valves. Uh, they've done five of the five patients, and three, three have died, and two are alive. But the scientist who's behind it made this really telling comment um, about the technology, and it's something you have to bear in mind. Anyone who's working with synthetic hearts needs to realize that it's got to work all the time, every day, just like your own heart. And that is a huge challenge for anybody in this field. And the other thing to realize is that you've seen these fairly big devices that you're suddenly sticking into someone's chest, and they are heavy. And um, I'm very grateful to um, a Gresham audience member called Ollie Hurst. Ollie is an artist who um, has con a congenital heart block. He has a pacemaker, and he has feels aware of the weight of this device. Pacemakers are really light, actually. But he's drawn some beautiful drawings which show the sensation of weight which these um, devices give, light devices like a pacemaker. Can you imagine what it must be to have kilograms inside your chest of mechanics? I think it must be a very strange sensation indeed. So artificial hearts, when you think about it, have been going since 1969, and we're now in um, 2016, and we're still in relatively tiny numbers of patients who've had them in, all of them have been conceived as a bridge to transplantation. In theory, you might want to live a lot longer than that with these devices, uh, but they just don't seem to be uh, cutting the mustard. So people started to use ventricular assist, that is to support just the left ventricle, because it's mostly the left ventricle which is supplying blood around your body. If you get that right, that's usually all you need to get right. You don't need to replace both. 
And so they used uh, first a device that could live outside. The pump was outside your body, and it pumped through pipes back inside your body with a device like this, which makes a hell of a lot of noise. So imagine sitting next to that guy in the theater. You know, it's not going to be great. And they eventually put one inside uh, that had a, another drive unit. So you could have a, a, an artificial ventricle, left ventricle, inside your chest or outside your chest. And in children, for, which is what we do at Great Ormond Street, we've used largely this device called the Berlin Heart. And I'm just going to again show you a little video to give you some flavor of what this device is like for the people who've got it. Here it is, a little tiny drive shaft with a membrane. Uh, blood comes in and goes out in that way, and the baby can sit, in this case, in, in bed, awake. And after they start to improve, here you see the membrane working, and the valves are just here. But the you can downside walk of it is you are hospital-bound, and you don't get to go out that often. You, know, you do go out, obviously, but it's not every day so you know you have to get that into your head that you're going to be in hospital for a while but the Berlin heart is keeping her alive at the end of the day. We really encourage parents to be hands-on in their children's care as this gives them some control over what's happening and parents do find this quite empowering. Parents get involved in changing the dressings which is good not only from establishing a normal routine um, but also in preventing infection around the area where the cannulas are implanted. Parents also train to look after the machine itself, which gives them some independence because they can actually leave the ward and go out around the hospital without having a nurse present all the time. Well, we don't just let them out of the hospital. They go around to Coram's fields and go on the swings, um, which is a remarkable sight when you see them there. And they get to meet their favourite rock stars. Um, and this is a, my namesake, Elliot, who's actually been on this device for over a year, essentially living his family in one room in the hospital. Um, but he calls his um, heart Thomas a tank engine. Uh, still learning to play the guitar <laughs> rather badly. Um, and is, a, is wonderful and remarkably happy, considering he's been in prison, really, for a year. The problem is that all of these pulsatile devices, this is pulsatile as you saw, have lots of nooks and crannies in them. And the surfaces tend to make blood clot. And you can get a blood clot really in any of these nooks and crannies. I'll blow it up for you so you can see the blood clot just underneath one of these silent plastic valves, not like the noisy ones you saw before. And this, if it's on this side of the valve, isn't a problem. But if it flies off and goes this way, it goes to your head. And so you can suffer from severe